0: Light 88.7 FM WAGP Beaufort Hilton Head Savannah, a ministry of community Bible Church on the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call in program with Dr. Carl Broglie. Dr. Broglie is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing Biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy.
1: Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, Handling Accurately the Word of Truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we are here to uh, help as best we can, by God's grace, taking questions people have about the Bible, or folks who are looking for uh, counsel on what God says about a particular area. So Rick, give us the phone numbers again.
0: 525-1859, and uh, you do have to do use the 843 area code now. And you can also get us toll-free at 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at wagp.net. And we do have a particular question that has come in from uh, Patricia from Beaufort. And she writes, um, recently, two people I knew in my life committed suicide. And I was wondering, when you take your own life, do you go to heaven? Is it a matter of the person uh, having Christ in their life before they took their own life? Any thoughts on this topic would be much
1: appreciated. Well, it's a good question, and it's uh, often been asked over the years. Unfortunately, sometimes people are asking it themselves or contemplating suicide, and their rationale is, well, you know, if I really go to heaven and I commit suicide, maybe this is the easy way out, and all my problems will be gone, and I'll be in the presence of the Lord, so what difference does it make? Well, let me just say that people who often think that way have a false uh, sense of salvation. Uh, Certainly a Christian could think that way, but I would say the majority of people that you meet that commit suicide are lost people and really not saved people. Uh, Certainly a saved person, though, can come to the point of total despair and uh, lose perspective and in in someone who runs down the road of suicide basically has reached a point in their life where they think there's no hope that things can never get better or be different and so this is the easiest way in which to deal with the problems that they're facing Um, but again jesus said you will know them by their fruit and so i would say as a general principle someone who would take that kind of uh, presumptive step on the grace of god has never really been regenerated by the Spirit of God. But can a Christian commit suicide? There's no question. And I have no doubt in my mind that uh, the handful of uh, funerals I've done, I've done hundreds of funerals, but the handful that I've done, I can count them on one hand, of people who have committed suicide, uh, were sometimes done by believers. And it's uh, very sad. Uh, number one, the consequences are, are huge. First, uh, for those in our family that are left behind, uh, they often deal with all kinds of guilt. They're asking all the what-if questions. Well, what if I had done this? Or what if I had said this? Or, or very often, they feel tremendous guilt, like, oh, there was an argument before the suicide you know, was uh, carried out, and so they blame themselves. There's no one you can blame for suicide but the person who commits it period it's like adultery, you know someone can say, Well, you know, I committed adultery because my husband was this way, and my wife was this way. Well, they may have been that way, but there's no one that God holds guilty but you, and the same would be true, certainly, I think, with uh suicide so number one it 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 it's very, very selfish it's the extreme point of a, of a selfish act, and it leaves a great, great pain for those who are left behind and Pastors and counselors are sometimes for months and years trying to help people who are left behind to deal with it. You know, it, it it says that our God is not big enough. So it also hurts our testimony in the community when someone commits suicide. If they're a confessing Christian, they're basically saying, well, what Jesus said is not true. He said the thief came only to kill and destroy and to steal. And the thief did come to do that. And so he is, I think, the author in many ways, of encouragement to uh, for someone to take their life. Uh, but I have come, he said, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So we're denying that. We're, we're basically saying the life that Jesus offers is really not an abundant life. Not to mention it's a denial of God's power to give us the ability to change. Uh, the scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it harms our testimony with a lost world, It certainly brings tremendous pain and heartache on those who are left behind, especially immediate family. But third, there are eternal consequences. Um, Many times people have concluded that uh, if someone commits suicide, they go to hell. And the thought behind that is they look at Judas and they say, well, you know, Judas went to hell because he committed suicide. No, Judas went to hell because he was an unbeliever. He went to hell sooner than he would have Uh, because he committed suicide but suicide just brought an end to his life not the reason for his condemnation the bible is very clear that judas was an unbeliever jesus had stated that for instance in the upper room the night before and even earlier in his ministry in john chapter six he spoke of the fact that there was one among them who was an unbeliever the son of perdition as he's called Uh, so um He went to hell sooner, not because he committed suicide, but because he had never truly believed in Jesus as his personal Savior. But what if a truly genuine Christian commits suicide? What are the other implications in eternity? There are huge implications because God has ordained the days that were written for us even before there is yet one. Psalm 139. And so when we commit suicide, we're basically mocking God's right to rule. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of God, Job said. And so we're we're mocking God's right to rule over our life. And of course, uh, the Christian will someday give an account for their service to the Lord. Uh, our sin has been dealt with at the cross. That has uh, been completely dealt with through the shed blood of Christ. So there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Paul will say. Uh, John can say that those who believe have passed out of death into life. They'll not be judged. So in what sense is there a judgment? Well, not for sin, but for service. And if God ordained you to say to live 60 years and you end your life at 50 by suicide, then you lost 10 years of service for the Lord. And you lost, uh, no doubt, a substantial amount of eternal reward. Uh, Again, heaven is a gift. It's not something you earn but God does reward the believer for his service that's done in the power of the Holy spirit. So there are implications in terms of eternal reward and all the implications for the eternal rewards are not spelled out in scripture, but God tells us to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. And so not everyone will have the same eternal reward. And certainly someone who's committed suicide has uh, brought upon himself a great loss of eternal reward, and it will mean it will mean something to us in eternity. Paul is very clear on that in 1 Corinthians chapter three anyway, so I appreciate that when you have people though ask you the question about suicide, you should always ask them, Is this something you're thinking about, and what you will discover is in a high percentage of cases that is exactly what is happening. And so be sensitive to that when people ask you questions in this realm. Good question uh, from Buford. Um, let's go to the next question.
0: Okay, we've had a number of questions uh, about uh, allowing our children to go trick-or-treating and whether our household should hand out candy to trick-or-treaters. What do you think?
1: Well, you know, there are sometimes uh, Christians who, you know, it sells books and pamphlets and everything else, and and they get almost superstitious with Halloween where they say if someone comes to your door, a child, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, and they knock on the door, they say trick-or-treat, and you give them a candy that you're giving an offering to the devil. That's just superstition. That's just stupid. It's 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 not founded in the scripture. Do I think that uh, Halloween is, um, in some of its expressions, a wholesome Christian holiday? Certainly not. There's a lot of evil that is associated with Halloween. There's no question about that. On the other hand, it's an opportunity for Christians to reach out. In fact, uh, we're just speaking in our staff meeting this morning that since we have Friend Day this Sunday at Community Bible Church, which is a day where we encourage our members to bring someone who's unchurched or someone who's still exploring the claims of Christianity to bring them, uh, because we have kind of a special emphasis uh, on helping, you know, an unsaved person to, to find Christ as their Savior. Um, pass out those invitational cards uh, at at Halloween. When the families show up at your door, give them, give them a card. Invite them to Friend Day, which this year is the very next day, November the 1st. October 31st is actually a great day in the history of the church. It's uh, Reformation Day. It was on that day, October the 31st, that Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses or not a thesis, but a theses, which is an, an assertion, 95 assertions, that he tacked to the Roman Catholic door there in Wittenberg, Germany, where he felt like the church had departed from the authority of the word of God. And so this was an important day in the history of the church. And, and, and it was called a hallowed day in Catholicism because it, the next day that follows in Catholicism, November the 1st, is All Saints Day, where they pray for the dead. And So that's something that Scripture does not teach. The book of Maccabees, which is an intertestamental book written between Malachi and Matthew, uh, talks about praying for the dead. But that's not part of Scripture, though it is part of the Roman Catholic Bible and certainly contradictory to what we know to be the Word of God. If God inspired the whole of Scripture, which He did he's not going to contradict himself. And there's a reason that the Jews never acknowledged the testament books as inspired. They thought they were helpful historically, but certainly not the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Uh, So again, you know, you can, if you're home on Halloween, why don't you use it as an opportunity when uh, we had trick-or-treaters come to our house, you know, we would have a little track that uh, was designed to share the gospel with a child. And so we, we gave out tracks to every child. We gave them a piece of candy too. You know, we didn't want them to feel cheated. But uh, in their bag when they got home, you can imagine, you know, children open their bags up and they get home and they pour through all the candy and they categorize it and put it into different stacks. And if they have a little booklet that talks about the plan of salvation in a child's terminology, what an opportunity to reach these unchurched children, understand now approximately 80% of the children in America now under the age of 12, no longer go to church. Uh, so we're becoming godless at an, increase, an increasing rate here in America. We're becoming like Western Europe. And so we need to be thinking about every creative thing that we can do to reach kids for Christ. Some churches, you know, have all uh, trunk or treat and, um, you know, all these different outreaches, uh, you know, to, to try to provide something that's safe and sometimes evangelistic, sometimes there's food drives. And so you can take, uh, uh what's really somewhat of a pagan holiday and turn it around for good to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. So um, i think, think, think outside of the box. And don't get um, so rigid on this that you can't relate to anyone and you miss the opportunity to win little children to Jesus.
0: 525-843, I should say, 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at and,
1: and let me just add, Rick, before I leave this Halloween thing, I would say it's similar to what uh, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, where he talks about worshiping an idol and meat that was dedicated to idols. And so he says, you go into someone's house and they put before you uh, certain food. He says, eat it, enjoy it. Uh, you know, if it comes up that it's been dedicated to an idol, that's, that's one thing. But don't say, well, you know, I'm not going to eat this meat because it came out of the uh, idol-sacrificing temple where a portion of it was dedicated to some false god. Uh, j- just eat it because he said there's only one God. There, there's no such thing as another God. Uh, there are certainly demons behind idolatry, which he also highlights in that chapter. So my m- my point is, is the principle applies. You know, to Halloween, you you can believe a lot of superstitions that Christians, you know, uh, sometimes embrace, which is foolish. But you don't have to, and you can you can use this uh, this day. Uh, for an opportunity to win people to Christ.
0: Okay, our next question was emailed us uh, from Buford. This person writes, I'm a born-again Christian. I do understand there are a lot of men who say that uh, they are born-again Christians, but their life does not reflect it. However, uh, as for me, I follow Jesus. And I'm looking into getting my B.A. and was wondering, what are some schools you would suggest? I will be doing my schooling online.
1: Well, I understand what you're saying. There's a lot of people these days who say they are Christians, but certainly, you know, are not. And and Jesus, in a number of places, you know, addressed this issue uh, in the Gospels, uh, during his public ministry, a couple passages that immediately come to mind. First would be the parable of the sower, which really gives us an understanding as to why sometimes people reject uh, the truth of the gospel. But it also helps us to realize that there are some who who look Christian, but their life ends up denying it. And so Jesus speaks of those who are beside the road uh, who have heard, then the devil comes and takes the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And then he speaks of those on rocky soil Those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, they have no firm root. They believe for a while in time of temptation fall away. So he's describing, of course, four different soils. The first three represent unbelievers and why they don't respond to the truth of God's word. And some, though, outwardly get excited, emotional, joyous even over the good news. And they believe for a while, but it's not true faith. Uh, they don't believe in Christ. They miss salvation by a foot. It's in the head, but it's never really truly reached the heart. Uh, you know, becoming a Christian is much like getting married. There's an intellectual and an emotional and a volitional dimension to marriage. You can intellectually know that you love someone and you want to marry them, and that this is a good choice for you. You can know emotionally. I feel love. I'm in love. Uh, I want to marry this person. Of course, love is much more than a feeling, but there's a willful dimension. It's not enough to intellectually know you are in love and want to marry someone and, and emotionally know you're in love. It's not until you say, I do. And you make that covenant with that person in God that in God's eyes, you're truly genuinely married. And the same is true with becoming a Christian. There are people who can understand intellectually the gospel. And Jesus said they believe for a while. Well, the demons believe too and tremble. Uh, Jesus described in John 8, uh, some disciples or John parenthetically notes that they believe. Uh, but then Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. If you were really children of Abraham, you would do the deeds of Abraham. You would show it, show that you had genuine faith by a saved, by a changed life. So there are there are some people who intellectualize Christianity, but it's not a willful decision. In fact, in the classic passage where Jesus describes that, it's in Matthew chapter seven. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. And just to underscore how um, important this is that doing the will of the Father is really a mark of genuine conversion. He then proceeds to describe someone who outwardly seems to manifest Christianity, but inwardly does not have a changed life. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So outwardly, they look Christian, and, and I think it's interesting, the examples that he uses, because he doesn't go for some kind of, you know, average kind of testimony, some ho-hum kind of testimony, but really the, the, someone who has kind of a spectacular testimony. They preached in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They did a miracle in the name of Jesus. But Jesus said, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. You never had the genuine item. And the Bible doesn't deny the fact that uh, an unbeliever can preach in Jesus's name. We've got him on television every week. The Bible doesn't deny the fact that in, that an unbeliever can even cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. Sometimes a demon is more than happy to accommodate the unbeliever because why? It gives substance to that unbeliever's false testimony. People say, Ooh, wow, he must be a man of God cast out a demon. Not necessarily. Sometimes the demon is responding to the unbeliever so that you will follow the false doctrine of the unbeliever. So again, today we'd look at someone who preached in the name of Christ, did a miracle in the name of Christ. And you say, wow, he's got a spirit filled ministry. Jesus said, in reality, he has no ministry for me. He never knew me but inwardly he is an unbeliever. So it's with the heart man believes unto righteousness, Paul will say in Romans 10. And there are many people who have not made that decision. Now you ask a question that you want to study further. Uh, There's some options certainly open to you now with online you know programs that were not available years ago. Um, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary now has a, an online program uh, where you can get you know, a theological education. Uh, Liberty University has one. It's very expensive uh, in terms of, you know, cost per hour, but a lot of people have chosen that as a school. Uh, Joseph Stoll, who used to be the president of Moody Bible Institute, he's now the president of Cornerstone University, and I think he offers an excellent online program. I'm not sure in terms of the pricing, but I do know in terms of the theology Uh, that it's sound and it would be a a good program to consider. So that might be um, a place to start. Or if you want to do a program, you know, just for personal edification, not necessarily a formal degree, you might consider uh, Search the Scriptures Institute of Biblical Studies. And it's a total of 33 hours. We have about 28 of the hours done. I still have two courses to do And I hope one of these days, by God's grace, we'll complete them. But it would be considered a a Bible certificate. Uh, But it's taught on a master's level. So there are, for instance, if someone today wants to be a missionary with a credible evangelical mission organization, usually you have to have gone to seminary or have a minimum of a, of a Bible certificate. And a Bible certificate was normally 33 hours. Interestingly, I just recently have seen some evangelical seminars who are actually giving a master's seminary for 33 hours. That's never been done in the past. And I think some people might end up criticizing that because most uh, master's programs in MA is usually... Um, about uh, 80 hours, and an MDiv, about 90 hours, uh, a Master of Theology, 125 hours. Um, but I've noticed some seminaries, I think because they're trying to get people in the front door, and they have to, uh, you know, pay for some of the programming they've done there for the first time offering uh, a Master's uh, degree with, uh, thir- I think it's 33 hours. And that that kind of surprises me. I think it might cheapen the degree. Most historically, most have just called that a Bible certificate. But that's an option open to you uh, if you just want to study for personal edification. Uh, but if you're looking for some, you know, accredited degree, then you'd want to go to an accredited institution and, and go from there.
0: All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How are you
1: doing this morning? Hey, Anthony, good to hear your voice. How, yeah, what's going welcome on? Back. Welcome
2: back, brother. Welcome back. Thank you question uh this radio station is very informative you know about it's talking about school and talking about what they're teaching in school and what they're not teaching and how people are falling away and all that kind of stuff right and and i know that uh uh pastor you endorse um uh, homeschool i think that's great i think if i had to do it all over again i had to work two or three jobs so my wife could homeschool what is going on right now But what I'm saying is what I want to ask is if you feel as a pastor that this is really, really important and I think I think so too, really, really important. Is there um in the future maybe community Bible having a, a school like maybe like at least for first to sixth, seventh grade or something like that? Is that in the future? Um, and I know it ain't nothing too big for God, but is that in the future?
1: We don't actually have plans to do that. Um, you know, I, I would rather do something with uh, excellence than do something you know that has half baked and not really done well. Uh, there, there are certainly some Christian schools in our area that are highly disciplined and. Uh, offer, you know, a Christ-centered education. More recently, there's this school, Trinity School, that has started in the last few years. Here's the challenge with a a Christian school. Um, There are basically two kinds of Christian schools. There's those that have open enrollment and those that have closed enrollment. What do they mean by that? A school with an open enrollment Christian school means anybody in the world can come. A school with a closed enrollment would would put some parameters on. They say, "Well, you can come. Uh, you can bring your child only if you or your husband, or you and your wife, or at least one of the parents is attending a Bible believing evangelical church." Unfortunately, sometimes that is defined loosely. Why are they doing that? Because they're they're trying to control socialization with the uh, students. In other words, I- if you have people who are coming from you know, just godless backgrounds and their kids are coming, then their kids are godless and they sometimes end up influencing the Christian kids. Now there needs to be an outreach and a ministry to reach lost people. That's what we're about as Christians. Uh, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that, which is lost. The question fundamentally and philosophically that a lot of schools are asking is, well, do I want to uh, sacrifice my children in the process of doing that? So here's what's happened in a lot of Christian schools is you have uh, children who, um, you know, they've either been thrown out of the public school and the public school just can't handle them anymore. Or uh, the parents, you know, are dissatisfied with what's happening in the public school. Maybe their kids are being beaten up or or their kids are beating up other kids and they're always being expelled or whatever. And so there's no place to go. And so they look for a a Christian school. And because there's not many choices unless there's a private school. And sometimes, you know, most of the time that's extremely costly. And for that matter, the Christian schools are typically pretty costly. They're not cheap. Um, So... What ends up happening in practice is these kids who uh, are very pagan and a lot of their thoughts end up bringing to that school a lot of pagan thoughts. And so, you know, I've had parents crying in my office because, you know, their fifth grader was exposed to pornography at a Christian school. And now, of course, with smartphones and everything else, uh, it's much more accessible and they they thought, you know, I sent them to this school so that this kind of thing wouldn't happen. So that they would, you know, be you know, grounded in, in the Christian faith. So there's some real negatives. And two, on top of that, then a Christian school has to decide, well, who are you going to let teach in the school? And so you have Christian schools that run daycare centers, which in my view is a violation, a clear vi- violation of Scripture. But they do this so the moms can teaching the school someone else is raising their children during the day yeah they are Christians but still there's no substitute for the mother being a worker at home now I I understand you know the implication of the statement that Paul makes in Titus 2 is that they're married and there are single moms in our day and everything else he's not dealing with the exception he's dealing with an intact family where you have a husband and a wife And this is a challenge, too, in our day, because now we have crossed over the 50 percent point. We're over 50 percent of the children being raised now in America are being raised by a single parent. And so this is a huge challenge for us as evangelicals to reach out and care and minister to these single parents, especially single moms, because in many ways they are the new poor and they have some challenges financially. But what is happening in even in intact families is these Christians, moms, go to the school because many times these schools are expensive. They're, you know, anywhere from four to $10,000 a year to send your child to this Christian school. And so they offer sub- substantial discounts. If the mother will teach in the school, then who's going to raise their children? Or many times then the mom goes on birth control and doesn't raise the godly heritage because again, they're they're trying to um, make this Christian school work for their home financially, and they're already challenged, you know, with the finances of our day, and then to add, you know, three to five to ten thousand dollars per child to send them to a Christian school uh, is very expensive. And usually, most Christian schools are not any less than three thousand dollars a child per year. That's on the cheap side. So if you have three kids, that's nine grand a year. To and and again, that's on the cheap side. And they, they, you know, most of them are five or six thousand dollars a year per child. Sometimes for a second child, they'll give a slight discount. So that's an extreme amount of money for a lot of families. So if you home educate, so I, I would rather just promote what I think is the ideal rather than a less than ideal situation and i'm not criticizing christian schools that have an open enrollment i just want parents to go in with their eyes open to realize what what they may be up against and i'm not criticizing christian schools i'd much rather have you know christian schools than the, the government school system is a failure it's a failed experiment and it's a disaster and i would say the the average parent that puts their child in one of the government schools from kindergarten through high school, and he expects in the end a godly product and someone who really loves Christ. I doubt it now God is bigger than you know what you know uh the government can can do and i and I realize that, and there are some parents who literally have no choice, but the fact is is that there are so many biblical principles that are being violated in our day. That to send them to a godless institution, and, and what makes it godless is really two things, not just the curriculum, though the curriculum now is anti God and anti christian and again, most parents say, really? yeah, if you actually read some of the books that your kids are reading, there 's a feminist worldview that is behind many of them, and again that 's anti God where you deny basic Principles and the roles that men play and the roles that women play. Uh, but that's being hap- that, that, that's happening all the time. Uh, basic roles are being denied. So there's that side of it. You know, there's a pro-homosexual agenda uh, that is plainly being pushed in the school. Most parents would be in shock in our own county, Beaufort County, if they knew what kind of... Um, a curriculum was being taught in the sex education courses they would they would fall out of their chair. you mean you 're teaching this to my child? Yes, they are, and so add to that let 's just say for the sake of argument that the curriculum was mild, like it was when I was a student in grammar school in the 1960s let 's say the curriculum is mild, and it 's not you know pure wickedness and godlessness in terms of um, you know, what, uh, what they're teaching. The fact is, is that the average child now is more and more pagan because they don't even go to church anymore. And so they're, they're feeding on material and things that, you know, God's very clear. He said, you know, the wise walk with the wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harms and foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Martin Luther once said, he said, I'm I'm much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless he said they diligently labor in examining the Holy scripture and engraving those truths in the hearts of the youth. And then he said, I advise that no one ever place his child in a school where the scriptures do not uh, reign paramount. Uh, why? Because he knew that the child's heart would be corrupted. Uh, there was a guy by the name of John Dewey. He wrote a document called the humanist manifesto and it was kind of updated in the seventies and eighties. Humanist, U- humanist manifesto too, but the humanist manifesto was basically uh, a document presenting um, what a humanist believes and what their goal was. And in that manifesto, they state very plainly, very clearly, that they want to uh, infiltrate the government schools with their world view. But you see, they couldn't really pull it off in the 1930s. That was written in 1933, that that document. But they couldn't pull it off because they didn't really have control of the public school system. Well, a critical year in public education was 1957, because that was the very first year the federal government got involved in public education. Up until that time, all public education in America was done on a state-slash-local level. So the first time in American history, 1957, the federal government gets involved in the educational system. Now they're, they basically run it. And it slowly uh, unfolded where they made states dependent on federal funds. Well, when you make a state dependent on a federal fund to help you know, pay for their education, then you make them also accountable to federal policy. And the federal policy, you know, is requiring more and more things. Uh, And even states, apart from the federal government, you've got states now in America this year, first school year ever, that have required transgender bathrooms. Uh, That's just a matter of time before that's a federal law where if you receive as a state uh, federal money, you're going to have to provide transgender bathrooms. These are the kinds of things that are going on in the government school system. And so they were able to control it from the top up. Um, One of Dewey's disciples uh, wrote in a a magazine that would parallel, say, Christianity Today. He said, look, what can a a church education do two or three hours a week versus, I'm paraphrasing this guy who wrote it, versus a public school education where they have your child six or seven hours a day? And that's true. Um, when they have the mind of your child six or seven hours a day versus, um, you know, a church that has them two or three hours a week, who's going to win out? Well, more than likely, uh, the government school is. So there's pros and cons to this. If someone really wants to think this through carefully, they might want to go and listen to my home education seminar where I walk through the history of education in America And I started in 1620 when most students were homeschooled. Uh, We look at the founding of basic universities like Harvard and Yale, and they were all started. The first hundred institutions in America, college education uh, institutions were started by born again Christians. Um, Most students were initially homeschooled. The exception uh, in the 1600s in America and early 1700s were uh, those parents who could not read or write. And then the, a uh, cliché of what we call a one-room schoolhouse was more than a cliché. It was the church house, and usually the most educated person in the community, namely the pastor, would instruct the children, and they would use as their textbook the Bible, and they taught them to read and write and, you know, using, uh, using the Bible. In fact, in 1765, they said illiteracy was virtually rare in America. Now kids, you know, they can barely read their own diplomas. But things began to change. The Unitarians took control of a lot of the colleges. Um, uh, The first uh, public primary school system starts in the early 1800s. But we've gone from a a, a state-controlled school system where you had uh, approximately 18,000 school boards in America to where we now have about 1,800 school boards in America. It went from uh, largely local, parental-controlled to government-controlled, and it's a disaster um, if, if most people knew what was going on, even in the middle schools in Beaufort County, kids having sex, um, terrible, wicked things that are happening, they they would just they 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 would hardly believe it. But it, it's happening, and they don't want you to know this. They want to hide it. And look, I'm I'm glad for all the. Christian teachers and administrators in our public school system. I'm I'm glad there, there is salt and light, but to put a a seven year old or a 10 year old and say, here, you be a witness for Christ. It's not going to happen at that point. They're a mission field. They're not a missionary. Their heart is being captured by someone. And so if you want to lose your kids in our day, I would just say as a general principle, because so many principles of God's word are being violated, put them in the government school system um, and you probably will lose them uh, to the world. Uh, if you don't believe me, listen carefully to my homeschool seminar. You can go to searchthescriptures.org and you might find that helpful. Let's go to our next caller. They're waiting patiently.
0: All right, indeed. Thanks for holding good morning. You're on the Bible line. Oh, yep, we lost them. Just hung up. All right, let's go to the next All question. Right. Um, an anonymous listener writes, My brother-in-law is studying to be a pastor and recently started to see a Christian woman who is not yet divorced and has three kids Her husband committed adultery and doesn't want to reconcile the marriage. My brother-in-law attends a fundamental Baptist church and his pastor advised him not to see this woman anymore and stated, if you marry this divorced woman, you cannot be a pastor in the church. Well, I guess he didn't like that answer and is seeking where in the Bible does it state if he marries her that he could not be a pastor. What are your thoughts on what the Bible does say?
1: Well, I don't know, obviously, all the details behind, you know, what is unfolding here concerning this uh, This marriage and there are some good godly men who would differ whether or not this woman has the freedom to uh, remarry but the fact that he's marrying someone who's on a second marriage is clearly taught in the word of god would disqualify him from being a pastor and whether his marriage is right or wrong you know christians might debate that but the fact is is that a pastor must be the husband of one wife a one woman man and he can't really meet that qualification in terms of what that actually means. It's not a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy. It's not a prohibition against a single person, uh, a single person serving in the ministry. It's not a um, uh, prohibition about being married like Roman Catholics take it. And that the marriage there is to the, uh, to the church and not actually to a real person, a woman, um, th- those things have been discounted in the history of the church. Most people would agree that if someone is divorced and married, or they've never been married and they marry a divorced person, that they are violating the prohibition about the, of modeling the ideal of being uh, with no divorce in their background. And again, it's not because God's down on divorced people. He's not 60% of our church are people who are in second marriages. Uh, The sins of the culture come into the church. But if someone wants to be a pastor or a deacon in a local assembly, he has to model the ideal because I, the God of Israel, hate divorce, Malachi 2, because of what it does uh, to two people. It it tears apart two living people. It's worse than death. It's very destructive. It's a violent act is how Malachi describes a divorce. And secondly, it does tremendous harm to the children and God loves the kids and it does tremendous harm to the children. So this man who left this dear woman with three kids, you know, did an awful wicked thing. Um, But actually until he remarries, reconciliation is still possible. And that's what that woman should seek based on first Corinthians seven. She should seek reconciliation. She should pray and fast that her husband would repent, probably needs to get saved and would get his heart right and um, return to the wife of his covenant and for that family to be restored. But for your brother-in-law, I think you say who wants to be a pastor, he's actually discouraging her from even thinking in those realms. She said, well, he doesn't want to fix it. Well, it's not over until someone remarries a change of heart can happen. And until someone remarries, it's really not over in, And yes, he will disqualify himself from serving in a church that believes the Bible and takes the Bible at face value from being a pastor. Now, you can find a church that will hire a divorced pastor. There is a multiplicity of them in our day. But a church that wants to be faithful to the Word of God, uh, he won't find a church that will consider him being a pastor. And if God's called him to be a pastor, uh, then he, he better study. If he's even asking the question, You know, what does the Bible say? Well, it tells me right now he's a novice and he's not ready to be a pastor. But if he's thinking that God is calling him in this direction, which is a good thing. And God many times calls people when they're a novice, but they have to mature to actually be able to fill the office. Then he wants to study this issue. I would suggest that he go to the Search the Scriptures website and listen to the message on 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, that deals with the qualifications for a pastor. And I think he would uh, have some good answers in terms of, I I walk through, you know, the seven positions held in the history of the church on the husband of one wife, and why there is a prohibition against divorced people serving in that office, and that that was the historical position held by the church fathers and throughout the history of the church. And some of these other positions are just brand new. And again, as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. If someone comes up with some new interpretation of Scripture that no one saw in 2,000 years of church history, then there's probably a a passage of Scripture that has been misunderstood in in their thoughts. So anyway, I think this caller is back, so let's go live to them right now.
0: Indeed. Thanks so much for holding. Sorry we lost you earlier, but you're on the air now. Good morning, Rick. Morning, Pastor.
1: Good morning.
2: Welcome back. We were praying for you.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I needed your prayer, and God met us in a supernatural way. But go ahead. What's your question, brother?
2: Um, in in my readings this week, uh, I came across Second Timothy three verses two, three, and four, uh-huh. where he preached the word. Be ready in season and out of season, and he speaks of having your ears tickled, and it just reminded me so much you know this was back then and we're having the same thing now and how people are turning toward that with people like osteen and joyce meyer and whoever else and i just It saddens me to no end to think that Christians can be led astray that easily, and I'd just like your thoughts on that.
1: Well, you're you're right. Um, Preach the Word in season and out of season. Uh, We're to be ready as pastors to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. Uh, You know, that kind of ministry, a reproving ministry, a rebuking ministry, along with an exhortation ministry. Uh, is diminished if you do a positive thinking Joel Osteen type of ministry. Uh, he thinks it's wrong to preach against sin on Sunday morning because people already have so much negativity in their life. Then he's disqualified himself from being a pastor because p- part of what a pastor does is reprove, rebuke, and exhorts with great patience and instruction. And the Bible warns for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, that That time is here. People don't want biblical truth. Don't confuse me with the truth. You know, don't tell me that I can't, as a divorced person, be a pastor. Don't tell me, as a divorced person, I can't be a deacon. Don't tell me that my gay daughter or son is living in sin. Don't tell me that homosexual marriage is wrong. Uh, People don't want that because they want to justify wickedness. And this is what's going to typify the final generation. Realize this, he said in the same book, in the last days, difficult times will come. What do you mean, Paul? Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. They will be brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, it's true we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. But when Paul describes these days, he describes them as going from bad to worse. And so that tells me we're in the last of the last days because things are accelerating towards evil. And then in addition, you have the term latter times, which is a term used by the prophet Daniel and Ezekiel and others that looks at the end of those last days. And in the latter times, people will fall away from the faith. What's the faith? Well, when it's articular in the new Testament, it's not from faith, but from the faith. He's talking about the faith like Jude does the faith delivered by the apostles. Once and for all, he's talking about the body of literature. We call the Bible, people would depart from the bible and they'll pay attention he says to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and so it's a doctrine of a demon for you know the Presbyterian USA church of which we have two here in Beaufort and some over on the other side of the river that now endorse homosexual marriage that's the doctrine of a demon that's not a doctrine of god that's the devil talking that's a demon talking to church leaders who officially sanction homosexual marriage and now these churches that sanction it that's not a godly thing and when a a local baptist church here says well we're not going to take a stance on homosexual marriage because it's too divisive that's a demon talking that's not God talking that's a demon that's a pastor who's departed from the authority of the word of God and that's a tragedy but that's our day and God said these days will come and these days are here and that's why you can't dilly dally in a church where a pastor is vacillating over the truth. Um, get in a church where the pastor is born again Bible believing and is unashamed to make you know, take a stance for what God says. And if he's unashamed, then you should support him and pray for him. If he is ashamed, then get out. Don't don't be in there with your with your family, and even if your family's grown, don't be in there. Because you're condoning his wickedness. So, um, anyway, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Uh, Listener just dictated. They would like to know, what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign?
1: Well, the sovereignty of God, slightly different from the providence of God, means that God rules and reigns in the affairs of men and nations and in people's lives. God is a sovereign God. God doesn't bow to the wishes of men. Uh, God does what he wants to do. And there are certain sovereign dictates that are recorded in the scripture. God will, for instance, someday send his son back from heaven and he will judge the living and the dead. Jesus said that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wickedness. The sovereignty of God is going to orchestrate that. When God sees um, the wickedness that is reigning in our world, I, I sat yesterday Uh, on the airplane uh, next to a a gentleman who was a Hindu. And he was saying, well, you know, I don't know. He said, I guess I'm a Hindu. Maybe I'm an agnostic. Uh, You know, how how can God really allow all the evil that is going on in the world today? How how can there even be such a God? Well, God in his sovereignty has dictated man with a free will. And God doesn't um, take away that free will. If God took away free will, then it would mean that man would be a robot and not really a free moral agent made in the image and likeness of God. With that said, God still in his sovereignty is going to someday make every wrong right and he's going to rule. You will see uh, an expression of his righteousness against sin. In fact, we're seeing an expression of his righteousness against sin in our day. Um, there's the wrath of God that's eschatological in nature, that's future. Paul speaks of a day when the Lord Jesus will come back from heaven and he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And he said, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's the wrath to come. That's eschatological wrath that God in his sovereignty will pull off. Well, God in his sovereignty today is also expressing his wrath Paul speaks in Romans 1 not of the wrath of God that will be revealed but the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven and so when a nation when a person refuses to give thanks or praise then God lets them go in his sovereignty their own way God gives them over to uh, a spirit of licentiousness to sensuality Uh, That's phase one of God turning a person over, a nation over. And then God gives them over to perversion, homosexuality. Then God gives them over to an upside down mind, a reprobate mind. And that's where we're at today in America. We're in the third phase of God unfolding his wrath. And if you read the set of vices that are going to follow when God takes his hand off of a nation and he lets them have their wishes... Where, you know, we have a government now that would call, you know, someone like me, a pastor who believes and teaches the Bible and says that homosexuality is a perversion. You know, they say they're basically saying that I am evil, Uh, that they're calling what God calls evil good and what God calls good. They're calling evil that that that's the way our, our, our culture is beginning to think. And if we want that kind of a culture, then just read the end of Romans 1 and you can see what is going to come. America will not be a friendly, nice place to live. And it will get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse unless we repent as a nation. So, God is sovereign. He rules in the affairs of men and nations. He wasn't wringing his hands on 9-11 saying, Oh, this caught me by surprise. Wow, what are we going to do? Let's call an emergency meeting of the Trinity to figure out what we're going to do. No, God rules in the affairs of men and nations. He is over it all. Uh, His sovereignty, in terms of his care for us, we would typically call the providence of God such that you know a sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from god's notice and if that's true of sparrows aren't we much more important than little birds and he says we are and so god reminds us of his sovereignty or what we would call sometimes his providence and the details even of the lives of those who know him who know him as lord because he works all things together for our good to those who love him so, anyway, that's a very quick answer. I could spend an hour on the sovereignty of God and in, in its many expressions and some of its misconceptions, but I won't.
0: Okay, we've got about two minutes left. Let's see if we can grab one real quick. Uh, this person was listening to a John MacArthur video recently where he quoted a Psalm of David, uh, 139, 21, and 22. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Uh, anyway, um, Reading a number of these psalms, uh, he uh, is a bit confused as to what uh, John MacArthur means by proper basis of
1: hatred. Yeah, there is a righteous hatred in the Bible, just like there's a righteous anger. Be angry, but sin not. There's a righteous hatred. Uh, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, David prays. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. Uh, And your enemies take your name in vain. Do not hate those who hate you, O Lord. And, and the word hate here is not an emotional word. It's very similar to Malachi 1.3 where uh, he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. He, he chose one and rejected another. And so David is absolutely right in wanting to reject the evil of unbelievers. And he's confident, and uh, he's writing under the, the inspiration of the Spirit and became part of Scripture that his hatred is a, really a perfect hatred. And that's really the sense behind the word that he uses. This is a perfect hatred. And so he calls upon God, um, you know, with this perfect hatred that he rejects those that God rejects. You know, I, I, I reject uh, the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States in their teaching on homosexuality. Now I pray for them. I pray for both of them. But I reject their teaching on gay marriage in their endorsement of it. Why? Because it's a wicked thing. And I hate what God hates. And that's what we're called to do as believers. And that's all David is saying here. This is not a contradiction to what Jesus said when he said, love your enemies. We're to have compassion on lost people. I have compassion on...